I was not happy. I was scared. I was nervous. I, you know, felt a bit like a failure, um, or a lot like a failure actually. And, um, but I look back on it now and I think what an incredibly precious time it was, how much growth happened personally. And that if I hadn't allowed myself that next phase, I would have never ended up in the place where I am today, which is 100% the right place for me. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs, whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, she is the venture capitalist behind brands like Reese Witherspoon's Draper James, Emily Weiss's Glossier, and our No Limits alum, Tyler Haney's Outdoor Voices, plus so many more. Kirsten Green is someone who we've been wanting to have here on No Limits for some time because she's one of the most influential venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. And on this episode, we talk about her path to becoming a VC, how she spots a winning company, what makes an exceptional founder, and how she made major career decisions throughout her life. Here's Kirsten Green. Kirsten Green, welcome to No Limits. Hi, Rebecca. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for having us to your offices. We are in the middle of San Francisco. Where? What location is this? What's this neighborhood? It is south of Market, so we're on Mission Street. And I kind of always describe it as we're conveniently located in the, you know, in the middle of, we're nowhere in the middle of everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, we're not quite in the hubbub um, to the, to the east of us or to the west of us, but we can easily get to either location and it's pretty easy for people to get to us. Well, so. I really love the space. There's great windows here and um, whoever decorated did a really nice job. Ah, thank you. <laughs> um, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time because a number of our guests from No Limits are companies that you've invested in over the years. And your name in every single conversation about venture capital. And I'm just fascinated by your story, by the way that you got started in all of this. And you grew up not that far from here. I, yes, I'm a, I'm a Bay Area native. So what initially attracted you as a kid to business? Because you studied business in college. I did. I did. I was a business economics major. I mean, I think really I was just very practical. You know, I had parents (laughs) that guided me and said, you can go to school anywhere you want in California that's public if you do something in kind of math and science. And so in some ways that sort of shaped a starting point. But I think fortunately, like those guidelines kind of aligned with who I was too, which was, you know, practical and numbers oriented. Um, And so I, you know, I embraced that as my major in college. Um, And then when I got out of school in the kind of early mid 90s, I know we've been through time periods in the last 10 years where it's been a really tough job market, but back in the early 90s, it was also a tough job market, and there really weren't many of the big firms coming to campus and recruiting, and many of my friends decided to take a year off and go to Greece or go skiing, because I think there's so much to be had for kind of being open-minded about what your path and your journey looks like and embracing experiences. But I was really like, I just got out of college. I just got a degree. I need to get a job. That's going to validate what I've been doing and make money for sure. So um, I started um, as an auditor at Deloitte & Touche. 
And that was really purely driven by me being practical. I felt like it was a stepping stone um, that I could, there was a clear path there that I would come out on the other side of it, potentially with a CPA license, and that I could hopefully leverage that in other ways. And that was the goal going in, and that's kind of what I realized over the three years of being there. Um, you know, being an auditor is not the most glamorous job, but I'm always been grateful for that starting point Mm because it was really a, it was a great way to transition from college into the working world. You started with a cohort of people. Deloitte was really good about investing in training and education. Um, And you left with some practical skills that have benefited me all along the way. There's a lot of camaraderie in those just out of college programs. I started out out of school in investment banking and we had the analyst program. I I assume that there were some similarities there. Did you enjoy the work or was it kind of like a box checking exercise for you? It was a box checking exercise, I guess. But at the same time, it was my first like job out of college. And so at that point in time, there's so many things that are exciting. It's your first business card. It's your first opportunity <laughs> to work with people that are more senior to be learning in new ways. And I was, you know, I was focused on that. I was kind of always focused um, on sort of where something was going to take me for good or for bad. And I felt like that was laid out pretty clearly in that job. So it worked for me for that. I respect you sharing that because I don't think a lot of people will talk about the fact that some some opportunities you take because of where you hope or think they might take you. I I you know, I think one of the biggest and most uh the most important lessons and the pivotal moments in my career journey has been when I allowed myself to kind of get off of a formulaic track mm-hmm. and to be more open-minded to what the journey might be. And to think not necessarily, like, to have goals, to have long-term goals, but not get so caught up in the exact measurement of every single activity, but to embrace those opportunities as learning opportunities to try to find that experience in whatever interaction you were having or project you were working on and, you know, use that as stepping stones. Mm -hmm. I feel that so much in my life right now that going from sort of moving from this reverse engineering success model to embracing moments and trying to enjoy them, especially because for me, I didn't enjoy the process enough along the way, I think, especially early in my career. And I, if I could go back, I don't, I don't live with regret, but if I could go back, I would enjoy the moments more. Totally. So what was the turning point for you to get to that mindset? So after I left three years at Deloitte, got my CPA license, was out to do something else. I, I had always liked the stock market. I'd worked at Merrill Lynch in college. It was just kind of a natural place to go. I think what attracted me to investing as much as anything was that it was a job that you got to learn about new things all the time. I had a job at DLJ, which is a firm that was prominent at the time, and Very you know, a bit, company. The mergers and whatnot. Um, and I worked at a, at a worked at a hedge fund for a short period of time before I landed at Montgomery Securities, which was you know a really formative um, uh, part of my career journey for me. I 
Um, I, I think I got a lot of opportunity there. I thrived there. There were good people there. I wore a number of different hats. I was an equity research analyst, followed the retail stocks. I moved over to a team internally after a couple of years and started on the money management side. It was really the rise of the dot-com. It was the bust of the dot-com. It was the consolidation across the banking industry. And um, at some point in that process, Bank of America, Montgomery Securities had gone through a couple of mergers. I had three business cards. I ended up working at Bank of America Securities. And the team that I was working on, you know, in one of the integrations was dismantled. This new team came in and they were going to be running the show in that department. And my superior said to me, you know, we value you. We want to keep you. You can't have this existing job, but what else in the firm would you want to do? And while that was, you know, very... Um, I think recognition of being a good employee and doing good work, I felt completely upended. Mm. You know, here I had been like so kind of goal oriented, like trying to succeed, thinking that I was doing everything to be a good employee, was getting the validation back. And then suddenly like the game was changed and there really wasn't anything I could do about it. I couldn't look back and say I should have done something differently I couldn't even blame them for the situation that I found myself in. It was the way circumstances that were about things much bigger than me played out. And I I really had to internalize, like, I was really upset. And so I had to search myself and Mm -hmm. figure out what that was all about. And I think, you know, a couple of things. One, I had sort of over-leveraged a lot of my identity with my career. Um, And so that was an important realization. And I think I've tried to keep that in mind going forward. And then it was also the idea of like, you don't control everything. There's only so many things you can control. And what I could control was showing up and doing a good job. But where that actually led me was part of a a bigger picture and puzzle pieces. So in some ways, it was a jumping off point for what became my entrepreneurial journey. Because on a practical level, I said, you know, geez, like no matter how good of a job I'm doing, my opportunity here changed. It got taken away from me for one reason or another. I'm not going to put myself in that situation again. And I think that really unearthed the entrepreneurial side of me, which was taking things into my own hand. You're betting on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm, and I'm, I'm whatever situation I'm putting myself in, I'm not allowing myself to be dictated to what that train I'm on, you know, Mm -hmm. is kind of, but, um, But at the same time, it also, you know, made me a little more, made me step back and reflect on like, what does a career journey look like, you know, and not to be so caught up in like climbing a ladder, but more thinking a little bit more open-ended about what the next, you know, what each step could lead you to. And what do I want? And what do I want? I mean, really, I hadn't asked myself that before, to be really honest. I was like working hard, heads down, like you know, and really taking a step back at that point and saying, you know, what about what I've been doing for the last 10 years? Did I really enjoy? What part did I think played into some of my strengths that made me uniquely good at it? What are areas where I need more development and have more opportunity and paying attention to those going forward? And so, you know, I think at the time I quit my job, I didn't have another job. The only thing I had was this idea that like, I just played different hats as an investor throughout a cycle that was most closely kind of defined as, you know, a retail, it it was about malls popping up. It was about the specialty retail stores becoming a big engine for growth. A lot of companies went public, big box retail was thriving. It was a pretty exciting time. And then it kind of 
you know, went full circle to a time period where people started talking about how retail stores were threatened, Amazon and eBay were becoming big companies, everything was moving online, like the entire model would need to be re-examined. And so I thought, you know, one cycle has kind of played out a bit and there will be another cycle on the horizon. I'd like to take my 10 years of experience and be part of the next cycle. But it wasn't obvious to me what that was looking like. I'd been heads down in a particular job and I needed to poke my head up and like explore a little bit. And that was a reality of finding the next right role career-wise. It was also what I needed to do as a person to start mm-hmm. developing. And that this really resonates, by the way, so much with me. I th- I'm assuming everybody listening right now, maybe some listeners might not be at that point in their career yet, but I have absolutely had this moment in my career. It's a healthy moment to have. You know, it's one of those ones that like you kind of have an opportunity, if not a calling to step back and take stock of things. And, um, so, you know, at the time I was not happy. I was scared. I was nervous. I, you know, felt a bit like a failure, um, or a lot like a failure actually. And, um, but I look back on it now and I think what an incredibly precious time it was, how much growth happened personally. And that if I hadn't allowed myself that next space, I would have never ended up in the place where I am today, Mm -hmm. which is 100% the right place for me. Like, I feel like it's the setup for me to thrive as a person, but that's because of work that went into it early on that said, you know, who am I as a person? What are my strengths? Like, interpersonally, what do I get excited by that I can really throw myself into and have passion about? And then how do I leverage the things that I practically feel like I've got professional skills at or, you know, I've maybe been taught or, or learned the craft of doing that I can leverage in a, in a career-oriented way? But at the time when I left that job and I said to myself, I'd always thought I'd go to business school I had passed that time period. Just, you know, I I had a job I loved and I was heads down and I looked up and I was like, well, people went to business school. I missed that chapter. But now I'm going to let myself, I'm going to make myself take time out to really be thoughtful about all of these things we're just talking about and not take a job. Not take a job for a year, so which no was hard. Which was hard for me. I wanted a business card and like I wanted a a paycheck from a place that was reputable, you know, being out on my own felt really, really scary. It was not my natural tendency. What ended up happening was I had five or six years of kind of a very, um, unplanned time in my career where I found myself kind of seeking opportunity and taking things along the way that I felt like were feeding my development and my interest level. And I was doing that with respect to work, which looked like um, doing consulting projects. It looked like helping some investment firms with some diligence efforts. It looked like starting to make some investments on my own. It was also a time where I was doing similar things personally. I was taking writing classes, photography classes, painting classes, like all kinds of different things that I hadn't made time for before. but how, anyway. was the, how was your head at the time? Was there doubt around, am I doing the right thing? Am I taking a risk? Is this risk going to pay off? Of course. You know, and I think that um, I always had like a, 
in my gut, I always felt like I had a big picture direction and a goal, but I couldn't sit across the table from somebody and articulate like exactly why I was doing what I was doing. My best answer and the honest answer was I felt like I was learning something that I cared about. Um, but I think always I was trying to reconcile, you know, a little bit too, like, where's this taking me? Where am I going to go? Um, and curiosity and some ambition, like kept me on that path, you know? Of course. So, um, so I do look back on that time period and I can identify certain things that I did that felt like accomplishments, things that I could reflect on and point to as having done, but it was a bunch of different things, you know, which I think, I think was so good for me because it was so outside of my character at the time. You created a hedge fund along the way. I did. That was actually my jumping off point. That was your jumping right? off point. So my jumping off point wasn't quite as like, oh, here I am at the cliff. Let me just go and hope <laughs> someone catches me. But I had been working you know, inside of Montgomery with a group of people that were managing money on a discretionary basis. I was um, participating on the consumer investing piece of it. And um, I left with one of the other team members to start a hedge fund. We had some client money we took with us. We had a little bit of a track record, but we had to now form a track record on our own together. And we agreed, shook hands on, let's for a year take this pool of money we have, go get a little office, and try to show that like we have a unique point of view on investing in the public markets, that we can drive some returns, and then we'll go out and start to try to raise money. So we did that spent one year um, and had above market returns. So went and said, okay, we think we can raise some money um, um, behind this and started taking investor meetings. And I really distinctly remember sitting in a meeting in May of that year and feeling like, I don't think I can do this. I don't feel like I have enough conviction that I have that that the, there's an outsized opportunity here that I am personally feeling really driven and inspired by. And really, you know, I mean, I've always felt that being an investor and a custodian of other people's money is a huge responsibility. It's a privilege and it's a huge responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I also really feel that like being really interested in what you're doing and engaged in it is a key part of being successful. And when I was doubting that, it felt like I just, I was not comfortable taking other people's money with any doubt in my mind that I was 100% um, ready, you know, passionate about the task at hand and set up to, to outperform. What year was that? I think, I mean, I kind of lose track a little bit of the years, <laughs> but I think it was, if it, it was, it was 2005. But I wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that it was investing in the public markets where this is absolutely one of the big things I learned like yeah. for me personally. Yeah. So I, I think my comfort zone exists in like numbers and mm -hmm. structure and planning. And like when I need a quiet day, like I'll sit around and play with an Excel model to kind of really, <laughs> I love but that. What I really love is people and relationships and engaging. And I feel like one of the reasons that I found my way to retail and that that captured my imagination was I was able to make it the intersection of quantitative and qualitative work. Mm -hmm. um, and I really kind of, uh, you know, I think my first, um, my first efforts that 
helped me get some confidence that I might be good at investing in this space was really driven by spending a lot of time studying consumer behavior was instead of getting away from my computer in the spreadsheet and saying, okay, that's base. Like we, everybody can look at that. I can look at that. We can understand that as investors. But if you're looking for something different, if you're looking for alpha, if you're trying to find something that everybody else is not, because that's where the yes. outsized returns lie, you have to think about a different from a different angle. And I started spending time thinking about the consumer. Like, why would they want to buy what they want to buy? What were they expecting in that effort? What was value? How did they navigate that um, decision set? And that became like the the thing that captured my imagination and kept investing in the space always different and does continue to today. Um, but I had to like, I had to, I went through that effort and realized that, but only when I went back and reflected later on, did I realize how much I loved the opportunity to engage with people and learn from people and, and have relationships be a big part of whatever I was doing. And so I think, you know, thinking about investing in private companies where it is so much more about engaging with the founders or the, the team or your co-investors is really like for me the very best way to tap into kind of both sides of my personality and the things that I think that I that I thrive around. So how long after you realized that did you create Forerunner? So, you know, in those years in between where I was doing kind of a, a couple of different things, one of the things I was doing was starting to invest in private companies. And I didn't have... I, I needed to go raise money from other people to do that. And um, and fortunately, I didn't... I mean, actually, unfortunately, I didn't know a lot of wealthy people, but I did know a lot of people that I had worked with that I think I developed um, some respect and, and, um, for, and they were willing to give me money because I think they knew I'd work really hard. Mm -hmm. And so I raised a couple of kind of, um, I raised some money to invest in a couple of different private companies, couple million, couple yeah. hundred thousand. So it was like the, I, the first one I did was a million and a half dollars. And literally it was like $50,000 checks mm -hmm. and people thought I was crazy, you know, and honestly, like I look back on it and that was some of the hardest money raising I've ever had to do. But at the same time, I was continually propelled by this idea of like, I can't do anything but this, like, this is where the next increment of what I'm doing is leading me to. I have high conviction around it. I have high energy for it. I'm up to the task. I'll take the responsibility of shepherding someone's capital of partnering with an entrepreneur. Like it was coming together, but you know, in these incremental ways. And so at the time when I have one company going to two to three to four, I still have a lot of time and, and effort to energy to available to put into those businesses. So I raised my hand and said, what can I do? You know, I'll, I'll come in and start to learn marketing or I'll come in and play CFO or I'll help write a business plan or I'll go search a, a, a you know, business relationship that might be good for the brand or whatever the case may be. And I learned a lot during that time period, mostly how hard entrepreneurship is, <laughs> um, you know, and, 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 um, and, you know, what it takes to kind of take an idea and get it off the ground and get some momentum behind it. But in the process of doing that, I absolutely fell in love with it. You know, I really felt like this was, turning on for me. Like, again, I had found that mixture of things in a way that gave me tons of energy to show up every day with enthusiasm for it. And as I was working with these entrepreneurs and I, and I was really having kind of a boots on the ground perspective on what was happening, I was building 
greater levels of conviction that there was a new way to do business in retail and that the new way to do business in retail not only stood to unlock all kinds of new opportunities, but would be different paths to bringing a business to market, to starting to scale a business, and that maybe those would align with a different type of financing strategy than had existed for maybe a retail business in the past. And I think just connecting all of those dots and bringing things together got me to a place where I had this, you know, um, real belief that there was an opportunity to invest at the earliest stages in companies that were looking to connect with consumers in different ways, that were looking to kind of invent new retail models or new models of going to market or new models of servicing customers in a way that was scalable, in a way that could reach large audiences in an efficient way and could be judged by metrics and KPIs along the way, which is a really important ingredient in whether a company is right for venture capital. I know I think that retail companies of past didn't have the benefit of getting access to all those early data points. If you think about what went on in the 90s, you had to like as a as an entrepreneur have an idea about a customer value proposition, you know, an assortment in a store for instance, and you have to make a ton of investment and and commitment before you had any validation what you were doing. Mm-hmm. You had to sign a lease. You had to get inventory for a store. You had to hire people. I mean, there was a lot that went into it before you knew if anybody wanted to walk through your door. And then when people did walk through your door, you basically had like two or three metrics to judge. You know, how much inventory was selling and how many people were coming into the stores and converting. And you couldn't tell a whole lot more. And it was hard to judge like if things were resonating. Today, when we launch a business, we immediately have a whole string of insights that we start to gain insights from. And I think, you know, the best teams are taking every single one of those data points, putting it back into the mix, using it as part of their formula for how they're doing business and judging the success of what they're doing and then learning from it. How many people are there behind the scenes inside of these companies evaluating those various metrics? At the startups? Yeah. Well, you know, as you can imagine, you start with a founder, a team of founders, and everybody's playing every single role. And you get some money, and you can maybe make a few hires. And I think one of the tricky things when you're starting out, and this is probably true actually for every step of the journey, is to really think about what are the most important things I can do right now to drive value for the business. Stick around for more Kirsten Green after a quick word from our sponsor. Do you spend the night tossing and turning? Are you dealing with a stiff neck and back for months? If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try a Purple Mattress. The Purple Mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced because it uses a new material developed by an actual rocket scientist. The Purple Mattress feels very unique because it's both firm and soft, so it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. Try your Purple Mattress with a 100-night risk-free trial, and if you're not fully satisfied, you can return it for a full refund. Your Purple Mattress is backed by a 10-year warranty, free shipping, and returns. You're going to love Purple, and right now our listeners will get a free Purple Pillow with the purchase of a mattress. Just text NO LIMITS to 474747. The only way to get this free pillow is to text NO LIMITS to 474747. Message and data rates may apply. 
And I think one of the tricky things when you're starting out, and this is probably true actually for every step of the journey, is to really think about what are the most important things I can do right now to drive value for the business. And is that is that the same for most of these retail companies? For example, is there are there a few things that all of these companies can and should be doing in those early stages, or is it totally company dependent? It's, it's hard to say there's a playbook. And actually, when I think you try to put things in a playbook, it gets boring and you can get stifled. Mm-hmm. And maybe you miss important things. So, I mean, I, I think we really challenge ourselves at Forerunner to engage and learn and bring those learnings back to being smarter at what we're doing and to be able to leverage them for the benefit of the next entrepreneur that we're working with. But we try to do that in a way that stays away from the playbook and really says every single time, like, what are you trying to deliver to the consumer? What are the two or three things that are going to make this an unbelievable experience for them? Something that they can't help but go tell somebody else about. Somebody that you you know they're going to come back and buy from you again. And let's really align all of our efforts around that. And there's basic structures that are shared from company to company, but you really need to ask yourself every single time, like, what is our core value proposition? How do we show up to deliver on that? And that can be different every single time. You focus on early stage companies, as you mentioned. What do you see as the biggest mistake early stage companies are making? I think one of the hardest things for any early stage company is to fig- is to take ambitions to accomplish 20 things, try to figure out actually what are the three things you can do that focus. move the needle. You know, it's, it's focus. It's, and it's not just, you know, saying we have 20, we can only do three, let's pick these three, but it's being you know really strategic or informed around what the three things or the four things you can do that are going to drive the most value. The things that you're going to have the highest amount of learnings that you can leverage for other things for, the few things that you can do that will um, validate part of your hypothesis, and the things that can actually like start to show some traction and results. Um, you know, Venture is very much a... a a reality of kind of continuing to demonstrate different parts of your business opportunity to validate different parts of your thesis, to have key metrics, to valid, to, to prove those metrics, and then to have earned the opportunity to go for the next leg of the journey. And an important part of being successful in any one of those stages is knowing what are the few things you have to do. What's the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make when they pitch you? Hmm. I don't know. You know what? It's a great question and it's a fair question, but the truth is, is that every pitch is different. And I think, I think maybe, maybe, maybe that's the answer, which is don't try to like come in with just a formula, be informed, do your homework, know the things that are important, but also like be you show up and and let me know why you're excited about what you're doing. Um, I think at the end of the day, I want to walk away from a clear idea of, you know, where does this business have the potential to go? How does it fit into the market or what new market is it addressing? And, and how should we think about that market opportunity? What is special and unique about what you're doing that's going to enable your business to rise above the noise? There's a lot. I mean, the good news is there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of companies starting. And there's a lot of appetite from consumers and businesses to engage with new companies. But the tough part of that is, is that there's a lot of people to compete with. And so, you know, trying to figure out how you have something that rises above the noise that stands out in the pack is super important. And then let let us know, like, why you? Mm-hmm. Why are you doing this? And some of your 
really massive wins. You've had a lot of them now since then, but you invested in jet.com dollar shave club. We had a Jenny Fleiss who was here on the podcast. Um, and she's impressive. She's, she's fantastic. And, um, it's, it's so funny by the way, because I remember the jet.com story. I remember covering when Walmart bought jet Mm -hmm. and thinking, what are they doing? Cause it was $3 billion that they paid. And at the time I was like, really doesn't make any sense. Well, now it makes total sense. They were transforming the company. Because they completely transformed the company, and now they have found a way to compete. I mean, they they really figured out their inroad to compete with Amazon. They've leveraged it in all kinds of ways. Completely. That I think is really changing the face of Walmart as a business to um, people looking to work there, join the team, and and to the consumer. I think that's you know very exciting, and I think Unilever also with their acquisition of Dollar Shave Club was really forward leaning, and thinking that okay yes we see a male customer who's more um, taking more agency over their own purchase decisions in part because shopping has become less friction and it's easier to do online. Um, they're thinking about health and wellness. They're thinking about their routines and the products they want to buy. So there's something going on in that category. A lot of people are asking, are we in a bubble? And, and I look at, I look at the consumer space, for example, how many mattress companies do we need? So I actually think that there's plenty of opportunity to probably build a bunch of companies in every space. I don't think the right thing is for all of them to be venture funded. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that we find ourselves like passing on making an investment is, you know, very sincere in saying to the entrepreneur, you're really compelling. Your product is special. Um, your messaging and thought process around what you're doing is deserves to be in the market. Consumers are going to like that. You have an opportunity to build a really neat business. You have an opportunity to build a, a brand in the space. Um, that alone doesn't necessarily um, say that you're also playing into what I was just describing earlier, which is being a change agent in the context of the sector and really kind of starting to push boundaries on like, what is a business model of the future? How do we reach consumers in unique ways? How do we kind of, you know, redefine different parts of doing business, whether it's different parts of marketing or different parts of retention with the consumer or different ways of navigating the supply chain or different ways of using all the data and insight that you have at your disposal to have a different way of driving business decisions. So like there's business models and there's great products and like both of them can thrive. They just might be better suited for different types of capitalization. Mm -hmm. That really speaks to a point I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is consumer companies at tech valuations and the pressure to scale for a number of companies that have taken venture backing, but that might not necessarily be positioned to scale in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely think this is an area that requires a lot of thought and consideration because there's a way in which you can use whatever type of funding you're going after, so let's say venture capital, to be complementary, if not a key part of reaching your ambitions. And there's a way that you can use it where it kind of crushes you, you know? And so like everything else, it's hard to say that there's a playbook one way or another. But if I had to kind of offer our view on that, I think generally we look to sort of really understand like, what's the business model? 
um, if we execute this business model, what kind of a business do we have? Is it a good business? Is it a business that's going to right. generate money and make a profit? Um, and once we've identified that we've got unit economics that stand to lay up for a good business, then you can make a decision about how to invest in growth and how growth might be part of contributing to the value that you attribute to the, you know, that you accrue to the business over time. I think the scariest thing is when you don't have those questions answered early on and you're just growth for growth's sake. And, you know, maybe I think in that situation, the best you can hope for is that you get lucky on the other side of it. And the worst is, is that it doesn't end up being a viable business. Mm -hmm. You've you've spent too much money, you've raised too much money before you've answered the right questions. And I think that's the tricky part where sometimes you end up in a situation that looks like a big blow up. A lot of times I think there's companies that, you know, do find themselves in a situation where they go out of business. And I'm not entirely sure that it's because they shouldn't have been around. It might have been about how they pursued uncovering, you know, really understanding those different parts of their business in what order. Totally. We talked to Sophia at Girl Boss. Yeah. And she talked all about this with building yep. Nasty Gal in the beginning. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? Oh, my goodness, Rebecca. So <laughs> many lessons. That's what keeps the job interesting and exciting every day. The toughest lesson, I mean, listen, it is very hard when a business doesn't work out. Yeah. It's very hard when you get to the point of like, there isn't a path forward. Because you here. care about them. You care about them. I mean, this is a human business. This is why I love it. It's what makes it dynamic. It what makes it so rewarding. But it also makes it so hard. You know, it's um, and I think that how you navigate that, how you show up, how you partner through that, um, you know, is 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 important. Um, and um, I think making sure that you grow in those experiences and that there are learnings and takeaways. We try to strive for that all the time. So, you know, a tough situation, hopefully you can get something out of it on the other side of it. But that's tough when things don't work out. Worst advice you've received along the way? Worst advice. Everyone always asks for the best advice. The worst advice. That's why we ask for the worst. I think I'm going to be hard-pressed to answer this question. Okay. And you know what? It's actually like, it's hard for me to answer the best advice too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I had enough time to kind of... Um, work on my own, where I had I had to be um, I had to be in search of those things from different places. I didn't sit with one mentor, you know, in one work environment over a long period of time to really get the benefit of like a person's wisdom, where it was obvious that like that's the person who shaped me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I made every effort all along the way to seek out those kinds of people for those kinds of nuggets, and I've put them back into my mix to feel like oh the whole world has been my mentor because it's been learning. Same way goes with advice and same way goes with bad advice. Yeah. There are plenty of people that told me along the way, like you can't start your own venture firm when you haven't been in venture. You know, good thing I didn't listen to them. I mean, once in a while it would get under my skin at the end of the day, it probably ended up being fuel for the fire more than anything. Um, you know, your point about mentors really resonates with me as well, because everybody often asks the question, who are your mentors? Who's mentored you? And, and there were a lot of people in my life who've played very significant roles, whether they are even aware of it or not. While some people talk about, Oh, I had this person and this has been my mentor along the way. I'm not somebody who 
would name specific names as people who have been my mentors along the way, even though there have been plenty of great people in my life who have helped me along the way. So, but I like that you said it because I think there feels like pressure at times to get that mentor. There really does. I think I've had like three or four interview asks lately, like even written ones that have been like, how do you get a mentor? How do you work with your mentor? How do you, you know, and I, I, it's, it's challenging to answer those questions. It's an organic thing. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. It's how you are open to it and how you process it as much as anything. Mm -hmm. This was a great conversation. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rebecca, for having me. Thanks for having us to your offices. Okay, it is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our fantastic listeners, who's building something of your own. Let's see. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Laura Brandeo. She is the president and the only female partner at American Financial Resources, which is a national mortgage company. Laura reached out to us to tell us more about her background because she was recently named one of Housing Wire's 2018 Women of Influence, as well as one of the mortgage banking's most powerful women. She says she's always been entrepreneurial throughout her life, and when the mortgage crisis happened, circa 2007-2008, she saw an opportunity to open a mortgage division her way, so she took a leap of faith. Here she is to tell you more. Laura Brandeo, and I'm the president of AFR. The question today is, what was my biggest challenge, and how did I overcome it? Well, I'm in the mortgage business, and in our industry, there are constant changes. Everything from rising rate environments, regulatory changes, or production, whether it being too little or too much. So what are my two most important factors of getting through any of these challenges that may come our way? One, a positive attitude. And they're sharing that positive attitude with your team members, because a positive attitude coupled with a strong team, will get you through any of your challenges. So don't let yourself get into that negative mindset and work together and you can get through anything. Congratulations, Laura. Wishing you continued success. Remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Laura. And don't forget if you or someone you know should be featured here as the Entrepreneur of the Week on No Limits, or if you have career questions, shoot me an email at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much to those who have written in. I really appreciate it. I know how busy you all are. I also want to say thank you to those of you who have been leaving us reviews like this one from Dmitri Petrov, who writes, really great podcast. Highly recommend it. Awesome job. And finally, a shout out to the wonderful team here that helps make this happen every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, our newest member, the newest member of our team, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelp, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.